welcome to another edition of Our Two Cents with MBA. I'm Jackson Hathaway, Executive Vice President of Member Services, and we're glad you can join us. In this episode of the podcast, we spoke with members of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Assistant Vice President Bill Emmons, and Supervisory Officer Megan Kallenberg. Bill represents the economic side of the shop at the St. Louis Fed. As an economist, he specifically focuses on what the banking environment looks like now and what economic conditions will allow us to forecast for the remainder of this year and into next. Megan, of course, deals with the supervisory side of the shop. Her emphasis is on how banks should prepare for supervisory efforts to look and feel over the coming years, knowing that the pandemic taught us one important thing. Regulators do not need to be inside banks at the same scale they did prior to the pandemic to accomplish the same goals. And so, Bill and Megan joined us to discuss what we should expect to see economically and in terms of supervision as we move through the remainder of this year into 2022. They discuss loan demand, deposit growth, liquidity, the challenges of managing a portfolio, as well as the nature of hybrid exams and what banks should be doing to prepare for those to become part of the new normal. Now, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, like everyone, even the regulators are prepared to be back in person. So I'm happy to report that Megan will discuss what in-person will mean for bank exams moving forward. But the most important piece of this puzzle is that it begins a series of conversations we hope to have with the St. Louis Fed, the Kansas City Fed, as well as other regulatory agencies to begin to craft a better idea of what the future will look like for banks around the state. So with that, please welcome Bill Emmons and Megan Kallenberg. I'm Bill Emmons. I'm the lead economist in supervision at the St. Louis Fed. I've been here uh, more than 25 years. And I'm Megan Kallenberg. I'm a supervisory officer in safety and soundness supervision. So I have responsibility for all of our state member banks in eastern Missouri, along with a few other states within our district. Well, we appreciate the time this morning. Um, you know, our membership is, of course, like everyone else, very excited about the thought that 2021 will be radically different than 2020 on any number of fronts, not the least of which is economic. Uh, you know, 2020 was just a roller coaster in terms of what we thought might happen economically and then what actually happened. Um, you know, we, we've entered 2021 with a, a good uptick and at the same time concerns around the board, whether that's uh, in the banking sector with CRE or more broadly with supply chain and um, issues related to getting products into stores, inflation, et cetera. Kind of the through line of 2020, though, was that banks held up really, really well, generally speaking. And not only were they integral to a lot of government programs, but just generally seemed to come into the crisis uh, well positioned and prepared. So I thought I'd ask both our economists and our supervisory officer here, what do you attribute that to? Why were banks able to hold up so well throughout the pandemic? So let me start. Uh, Jackson, I think you're exactly right. I think banking generally, many, most banks came into 2020 in pretty good shape and somewhat in contrast to the previous downturn. So there really weren't any uh, severe imbalances in the economy or in the financial system. Uh, so that definitely was, was one factor. Then we were hit by this uh, shock that no one, I think, has any experience with, a non-economic, non-financial shock. And it definitely threw us all for a, a, a loop. Um, I think the responses, you know, you need to distinguish between the public health responses, which, uh, and I should say, I'm speaking for myself, not for anybody else at the St. Louis Fed. Uh, I think on the public health side, we did not do well early in the uh, pandemic. We finished the year very strong with the vaccination, you know, the early uh, production of vaccines and uh, vaccination campaign. Uh, but that that was a problem that we did not get our hands around the, the pandemic early. 
Now, at the same time, the economic and financial policies, I think, were uh, just incredible how quickly the Fed, the Congress, uh, on a bipartisan basis came together to, to put a massive uh, support package in place. And, and uh, more specifically in the financial system, we had some very serious potential problems in March and uh, you know breakdowns of liquidity in the treasury market and elsewhere. And this is something that's not very well known publicly, uh, but we came very close to another very severe financial uh, problem in March. And so I think uh, the, the actions of the Fed and the treasury uh, on a very, very timely basis were very important in getting us through that. I might add from a, a banking standpoint, you know, capital levels and prudent risk management practices, I think, you know, attribute to banks holding up pretty well in this roller coaster in the last 12, 14 months. Um, to give a little bit of a data point, so tier one leverage ratio for the US was roughly 7.75% when the financial crisis happened. Um, you know, you can compare that to the pandemic. So when the pandemic started in March, tier one leverage ratios were roughly 9.25% across the U.S. So to make that specific to banks headquartered in Missouri, um, you know, again, when the financial crisis hit, they were just barely at 9% tier one leverage. And then when the pandemic hit, it was about tier 10% uh, tier one leverage. So significant difference, more capital, each institution had more capital protection. Um, and then kind of shifting gears and talking about prudent risk management practices. You know, since the financial crisis, we've seen a number of banks fine tune their policies, their procedures that they have in place governing how their lending practices are, um, their enhanced underwriting standards, and then also putting in place acceptable loan review functions. You know, I, I think this very much helped bankers identify borrowers who are truly impacted by the pandemic. Um, so they were able to work with them in a timely fashion. The one other thing I might tack on to is uh, operational risk management. Um, and maybe it's not so much operational risk management as it is just how banks operated. I mean, I was so impressed with um, each and every banker within our district, their ability to um, stop serving customers in the lobby. They shut down their lobbies and started doing appointment only, um, happened to navigate with reduced number of staff. If they had people on their team who were either sick or they were caring for sick people. So just bankers ability to operate, be nimble in that environment and shift gears when and where it made sense. And I, I know when I, uh, I speak for the bankers and I say there was also flexibility from the regulatory agencies that was really pivotal in the banks being able to operate for their customers. Um, you know, the Fed, but also state agencies, OCC, FDIC, everybody really kind of stepped up in terms of finding new ways to work together and collaborate. Because as I think you said, Bill, this was not a, the kind of crisis we were accustomed to. It wasn't something anybody was prepared for. It was non-financially initiated. And to really work together and collaborate in ways that would allow the banking system to provide support um, was a critical piece of the puzzle. And the regulators have as much credit in that as anybody, because obviously your worlds were upended when you had to go remote and start doing remote exams and all of those exciting things. At the same time, there was just this dearth of, of stuff that also fell on the shoulders of banks from broad government uh, stimulus packages. We had PPP, we had EIDL, we had economic impact payments. These are all things that banks are now intimately and probably terrifyingly familiar with on many fronts. They radically changed balance sheets. Uh, we certainly hear that over and over coming into 2021. So I'm curious, how are you seeing the results of those program impact bank financial conditions overall this year, maybe into next? And what's your perspective or concern around some liquidity positions that we're seeing out amongst member banks? Sure. 
So um, results of these programs, definitely the ballooning of the balance sheet, right? We saw increase in loans with PPP and an increase in deposits um, from either the stimulus payments or funding from the PPP loans. Um, so as of right now, to be honest, I really don't have concerns. Um, I feel like that's an unpopular answer. And if I was sitting in front of a bunch of bankers, they would throw things at me right now. But as a regulator, I really don't have concerns around the liquidity position. Um, but I do have a tremendous amount of empathy for what bankers are going through right now, having to manage the flush liquidity positions and still turn a profit. You know, I, I, I can't imagine being in that position right now. And also the unpredictability of is this volatile funding or is it non-volatile funding? We're still trying to wrap our heads around that. Um, I, I thought I would share my personal thought um, on the perspective of liquidity position. I, I'll quote Bill. This is my personal thought, not the opinion of the Federal Reserve System or the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Um, but I truly think we're going to see a decline in total deposits over the next three months. Um, part of why I think that is, um, you know, the summer uh, summer months, I think a lot of people are going to be traveling more than they ever have before during the summer time frame, making up for lost time over the last 14 months. I think we're going to see an increase in spending from a leisure and entertainment standpoint. Um, you know, and, and I don't know if that's tied to urban versus rural or, you know, generational driven, um, but I personally do think we're going to see a decline in total deposits over the summer months. I was just reading an article earlier this morning from the Wall Street Journal talking about business travel is making a comeback. Um, so to me, seeing articles like that, signs uh, of travel increase, the cost we're spending on travel um, it is hopefully be a sign that deposits will decline somewhat over the next three months. Um, the one one thing I will mention, I'll counter my own thoughts, my own opinion. I did hear recently the last two weeks um, from another state, not Missouri, but another state within our district, that they're hearing a lot from rural community bankers that they don't think deposits are going to run off. They don't think there's going to be a decline in total deposits, that they very much count the increase in deposits as an increase in core deposits. Um, and they think that is the pandemic has uh, caused a shift and change in the way people save and where they place their money. So it's still very much in the air. Two sides of thoughts. I have no no real answers, but my personal opinion is we'll see a decline in total deposits in the next three months. I'll kick it to you, Bill. Uh, and I know I know we want to talk more about the looking forward uh, this year and next year, but I do think a real concern is kind of the exit strategy from both from the policy perspective. Uh, the source of these uh, abundant liquidity conditions, and uh, how do banks transition? What what Meg is talking about um, from a super abundant liquidity position to something that looks more normal, and uh, you know a great unknown is when that transition will occur. But I think it's reasonable to expect that it will occur in the next uh, year or two or three. Hard to talk about deposits and liquidity without also talking about loan demand. You know, we're hearing that loan demand is not just ramping up as quickly as we might expect across the board. Some communities, some banks, they're seeing uh, a little bit more demand, pent up demand as people come back into business or open back up, but not at the rate that we might have hoped for, or certainly uh, not to not in an equitable rate to the amount of deposit dollars that have flown in. Any thoughts on what you're seeing um, or the Fed's perspective on loan demand right now? Well, I think, uh, you know, one concern is with the, with all the liquidity. If you have, uh, you know, some borrowers uh, think about, say, retail mortgage, um, that's probably going to be quite rate sensitive. And, you know, under current situation with very, very attractive rates, 
you, you know, you're seeing good demand, even though many customers, retail, household customers are pretty flush uh, with liquidity. So I think that it has the potential to be kind of a surprise that you, know, you can go fairly quickly from a, uh, what looks like decent loan demand to uh, you know, not, not so good. The one thing I might add is um, if a bank has um, a mortgage operations or they're heavy into one to four family, that's where we're seeing the increase in loan demand. Um, but outside of that, we're not seeing it trend up in any other sector, really. It's primarily one to four family. With amazingly limited supply on the market right now for that very category. Right. Yeah, it's keeping a lot of a lot of mortgage folks up at night right now. But, you know, generally speaking, I, you know, I don't want to be doom and gloom. The economy does appear to be healing. Now, you know, we're moving into a place where we, we see the market, whether they're surprisingly or not, continue to grow and grow and grow. Uh, and yet we are also experiencing some things that are a little concerning. We have workforce concerns um, here in Missouri. We, of course, have the additional unemployment benefits running out uh, on the 14th of June. Uh, there is concern about inflation because of both demand and generally because of the amount of liquidity in the market. Uh, overall, how would you evaluate the U.S. economy at the moment, as well as the economy in Missouri specifically? Let me take that. Uh, Missouri has, uh, on most of the conventional metrics, uh, done as well as, if in fact, even better than the national average. Our unemployment rate is lower. The national average, we don't uh, did not get as hit as hard as some areas. For example, those very uh, travel tourism dependent. So, in that respect, I think we're we're pretty well positioned. Um, for what what comes next, but as you say, what comes next is really uh, hard to hard to anticipate. Uh, you mentioned workforce, and you know we're already in some of our uh, some Missouri markets. We've got unemployment back in the fours, back in the threes. So you know there's not much room um, for further expansion. Some of that could be addressed by people coming back into the labor force, um, and you probably everyone is following this. You know. That's a huge unknown. How many people uh, are temporarily outside of the labor force because of child care, uh, elder care concerns, uh, safety concerns? There's also uh, some evidence that people uh, have retired a little bit sooner than they might have, or um, you know that the aging of the population also is, is definitely playing a role there. So uh, that I think is you know almost paradoxically it is a uh, concern. In fact, uh, pres our President Bullard has talked about this very recently, saying the labor market may be tighter than we think, uh, and particularly in some places like in Missouri, that um, we may be bumping up the, against those constraints. And I'm sure a lot of employers would be saying this already, that they're feeling they have a hard time hiring. They uh, may be uh, feeling like they need to uh, make uh, job offers more attractive, which you know could put some pressure on their, their profitability. So you know, it's it's a hard uh, cycle to to understand because it hasn't been that long ago when we were really feeling uh, like we were hit very hard, and yet all of a sudden now we're talking about labor markets being tight, uh, and as you said, the uh, the inflation issue too. Um, my own view, and again speaking only for myself, is that I think this is a real concern. Uh, you see it certainly in the reported uh, price numbers already, uh, and also there's some some concerns in financial markets that there will be uh, some upward pressure on inflation. Uh, it's so far has been very moderate. Long-term interest rates have not reacted 
uh, as much as uh, you know we might have feared because they were moving up pretty rapidly at the end of last year, beginning of this year, but they've been pretty calm recently. Um, so yeah, I think we're going to we're feeling like we're still in the healing process, but we also have to be thinking about uh, the the issues of a fully employed economy or even potentially an overheating economy. So these these concerns are going to be uh, more discussed this year and next year, I think. And, and that will translate into, I think, how the Fed is, is seeing this. Our President Fuller and a number of other FOMC members are starting to, to say, you know, they would like to uh, think about what comes next, you know, get us uh, to a, a sustainable uh, position for this year, next year, and beyond. So to that end, if the Fed does indeed keep rates low, you know, if we maintain where we kind of stand or very close to it, what would you say to banks about managing their portfolios? What concerns would you have from a supervisory perspective about balance sheet management, about credit, profitability? I mean, some of the things we've talked a little bit about, but in a low rate environment, um, certainly different than when we, we thought rates would be going up and up and up. And that wasn't that long ago, you know. Well, let me start and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Meg. But, you know, the Fed, I want to make a distinction, draw a distinction between a commitment in the sense of, of a communication strategy from the Fed to keep interest rates low and an ironclad promise. It is not an ironclad promise, a guarantee that rates will remain at very, very low levels. Uh, current direction uh, uh, projections are that this will last into 2024 before the Fed raises rates. But um, that is not guaranteed. And so I think from a risk management perspective, uh, it, it really makes sense to think about scenarios of seeing rates moving before that. And in fact, in the financial markets, there are now, I, would, I think the most recent numbers, um, markets are expecting rates to move up off of zero uh, within two years. So depending on how the, the numbers come in with inflation, you know, this idea of the economy already being closer to full employment than, uh, you know, we thought possible just a few months ago, uh, you could certainly see that timetable shifting over time. So, uh, you know, definitely listen to the to the FOMC commit uh, communications about keeping rates low for an extended period. Uh, but there's there are you know, there are risks. There's a possibility that, that rates would move before that. From a, a supervisory perspective, um, this is a hard question. Um, you know, one I will give my standard regulatory response. Continue to operate your bank in a safe and sound manner and exercise prudent risk management practices, right? We should just have a piece of paper that we hold up as regulators every time we answer a question like this. Um, but my hope is too that you're each and every banker, if you're having to think creatively about your revenue streams um, or your business products, that you're having conversations with your primary regulator. Um, I think if the pandemic has taught us anything is to be a bit more open minded and to, you know, at least from the Federal Reserve Bank standpoint is to have open, honest and often communication with bankers as much as we can and try and understand their positions, how they're thinking about their balance sheet, how they're thinking about profitability. You know, if they're going to change their um, risk appetite, especially if it's related to credit, what does that look like? And can we offer guidance and support as they're making those types of decisions and talking about that with their executive management committee and with their board of directors? 
Um, so I would just say continue to keep lines of communication open with with your primary regulator and have those conversations as you're beginning to think strategically about how do you make a profit and times like this and rates so low. You know, it is funny, the relationship between examiner and bank, regulator and bank, it certainly was always a, a partnership in many respects, or at least you certainly hope so in the best of cases. But 2020 really drove home the importance of how well you could interact with regulators on site, off site, somewhere in between, um, and then keeping your bank safe and sound in the middle of chaos. It's changed everything. I don't think anybody questions that the world's not going to fully return to normal, and that certainly includes supervisory efforts and examinations. Um, every industry is changing, and that would include yours. So I am curious for our banks out there who ask us all the time what we think and who ask their regulators what's going to happen and when's everybody back. What are you thinking about when you look to the future of supervisory and examination processes? What should be banks pre be preparing for? Um, what will the operation look like? Is there some blended mode you're talking about? Is it uh, just a slow burn back to on-site? Um, what have you learned and, and what are the best practices going to be that you know of right now? So one thing that we've learned is we can still do our job effectively off-site. Um, the piece that we miss most um, about not being on-site during an exam is um, that face-to-face -face conversation. We've actually heard from a number of bankers, believe it or not, who miss seeing our faces. I thought I'd never hear those words, um, but we've heard a number of bankers say we can't wait for the day that we can have an exit meeting face to face. You guys can come on site. Tell us what our ratings are. Tell us what any of the findings are. Um, so I very much think the future of exam functions, exam approaches is going to be um, a hybrid. It's going to be blended between offsite and onsite. Um, you know, we've you know, just speaking candidly, we've seen a cost savings from a travel standpoint, not being on site so much, and we have to be thoughtful about our cost as well and what we spend. Um, so we will have um, off-site work that we try to do in advance uh, before we go on site with the bank. Um, but the hope is that we're still having some of those key management discussions face to face. And maybe it's not our whole exam team. Maybe it's just some of the leadership positions. So instead of 10 people, we may send three people. Instead of a full week, we may go on site just for two days. Um, so it very much will be a hybrid approach. I don't foresee a point in time where we're 100 percent off site um, or 100 percent back on site. Um, you know, as far as what can banks prepare for, I'll go back to that communication piece. Um, you know, one thing we do at the Fed is we have um, quarterly conversations with our bankers. So we have what we call portfolio examiners or central point of contacts. Um, and each quarter they're reaching out to the state member banks. They have a portfolio between 10 and 15 state member banks that they're talking to and saying, you know, what changes have you experienced in operations? Talking about the balance sheet. And they also help uh, bankers prepare for what the next exam event looks like. So as we start to change our process and our approach a little bit and start to define what hybrid exam looks like, um, those central point of contacts will be great people to relay information back to bankers. Let me mention a couple of things uh, kind of at a high level. Uh, I think you have uh, in the future, I hope we'll hear some about some of the innovations that are happening in uh, supervision, even things like artificial intelligence, uh, dealing with lots and lots of data and uh, trying to make sense of that. So we are definitely on our side trying to uh, be better. As, as Meg said, you know, we're learning how to be effective under whatever circumstances. And so, uh, you know, I think you can look for that in the future. Another thing I'll, I'll comment on is uh, supervisory, federal supervisory policy and personnel. Uh, so, for example, CRA, I think 
you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the last few years, and we had this divergence between federal agencies. Uh, it looks to me like that's going to converge, uh, not least because the OCC, which was kind of, uh, you know, the OCC and the Fed were moving in different directions on CRA. Um, the OCC now has an interim director who is, in fact, a former uh, Fed staffer. Uh, we don't know who the new OCC permanent head will be, uh, but I suspect we'll uh, be more willing uh, to, to collaborate with, with the Fed on that. Um, other things uh, which are not specifically uh, Fed related, but obviously I think Cecil was just getting going uh, as we hit the crisis. And I suspect we're going to, when things settle down a little bit, we're going to circle back and say, how did this work? Uh, how can we uh, tweak this? So I think, uh, you know, and these transition dates are, are have been moved around. So I think that's an issue that we'll be thinking about a lot more in the next couple of years, not least because also we're going to, as we come out of the crisis, credit uh, quality is going to sort of be revealed. It's It's been hidden really in some respects because of the massive stimulus uh, programs, because of forbearance that's been put in place. So it's going to take a while to figure out you know, what happened and how do we deal with credit risk going forward. And then a, another point that I'll mention is that uh, at the Fed, at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, there could be uh, some pretty substantial transitions in the next few months really. Um, already in October of this year, the chair, vice chairman for uh, supervision, Randall Quarles, his term is up. Uh, he was a Trump appointee. Uh, all indications are that he will be replaced by someone else, either an existing uh, board member or someone new, because there is one open seat on the board. Uh, now, that has, of course, probably less direct impact on smaller banks because uh, Quarles has been more focused on the big banks and the international aspects, but I think it still has the potential uh, to, to make a difference. And then uh, Chairman Powell is also early next year, in February, his term as chair will expire. My own guess is that he will be reappointed, but you never know. Uh, that was the guess last time that, that Janet Yellen would be reappointed and she wasn't. So it could happen that uh, we would have a new Federal Reserve chair as soon as uh, next February. So uh, in that respect, you know, once we get the crisis behind us, I think we're going to get back to those sorts of uh, of issues. And the players have changed. Say we're going to have an OCC, a new OCC Fed. We could have a new Fed chair. Uh, I think uh, Chair McWilliams at the FDIC has indicated she'd like to stay around for a while. Um, you know, so so things could be changing in the not too distant future from the uh, federal supervisory side too. Yeah, you're hitting on some of our favorite terms around here: Cecil, CRA, the kind of smoke and mirrors across credit right now because of the stimulus. These are all things that are really important topics that we do plan to dive deeper into. Uh, whether that's because of interagency efforts or because of deadlines that have been pushed that are now going to become very very important, or because of as you said, what may happen as we see transitions uh, across the various agency leadership uh, positions, and all of that will have you know to whatever degree of significance impact on our banks, the way that they deal with their regulators, and the way they think about their strategies and plans for the next uh, year, two years, three years out. Uh, hopefully, leaving the pandemic behind and returning to some sense of normal operations and business growth. But only time will tell. Let me uh, put in a plug here, though, for the St. Louis Fed leadership, I think is very rock solid, is going to be there. Uh, Meg and her colleagues, the officers in the supervision division are uh, going to see us through any transitions that occur in Washington. 
Good time for a plug. Wonderful time for a plug. And we certainly appreciate what the St. Louis Fed does for our member banks uh, and in partnering with the NBA to get these kinds of communication efforts up and out there. Uh, we certainly want to make sure that we're all operating in alignment with one another, that our banks know what you're thinking and that you know what our banks are thinking. So to that end, we certainly look forward to more of these opportunities with the St. Louis Fed and the various members of the team there. Any closing remarks, uh, Bill, Meg, that you want to make as you have these banks listening in? I'll just say, uh, you know, looking into the future is uh, it's fun, but man, is that difficult? Who would have thought 12 months ago we'd be where we are right now? Uh, you know, in in some respects, much much better off than we thought we might be. But of course, we've also got some challenges that are that are lingering. Not least uh, getting the labor market back uh, back on track. Um, but you know, it's always exciting. I'll just say, ditto to what Bill said, he summed it up best, but we very much appreciate the opportunity to answer a few questions and hopefully we gave a little bit of guidance to anyone listening. I think that is the case and we'll certainly be passing along your information for anybody who wants to reach out and follow up. Uh, I, I know that that's uh, the kind of fun conversations you get to have anyway, but you never know. There may be a banker out there that this tickles their brain in some way, and they certainly will uh, follow up with additional requests, thoughts, questions for you. So thank you both for your time today. Thank you to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. and look forward to partnering with you moving forward as we try to, as I said, put it, uh, produce more podcasts that hit on these and other hyper-relevant topics to banks coming out of the pandemic. Thank you both and have a great afternoon. Thanks, Jackson. Thank you.